Hi, everybody. On behalf of the Southeast ADA Center, the Burton Blatt Institute at Syracuse University, and the ADA National Network, I want to welcome you to 504 at 50. I'm Barry Whaley. I'm the project director of the Southeast ADA Center. 504 at 50 is a special interview series created in recognition of the 50th anniversary of the signing of the Rehabilitation Act of 1973. And in this series, we speak with people who are leaders in the disability rights movement who advance the cause of equal rights through their tireless work. On our episode today, we welcome Andy Amparato. Andy is currently the Executive Director of Disability Rights California. And Andy has more than two decades of experience as a disability rights lawyer and policy professional. He's worked with bipartisan policymakers to advance disability policy at the national level in the areas of civil rights, workforce development, and disability benefits. From 2013 to 2020, Andy was the executive director of the Association for University Centers on Disabilities, known as AUCD, and he was the senior counsel and disability policy director for Senator Tom Harkin on the U.S. Senate Committee of Health education, labor, and pensions. Before that, for 11 years, Andy was president and CEO of the American Association of People with Disabilities, a national membership organization working to grow the political and economic power of the disability community. His perspective is informed by his personal experience as someone with a mental health disability. Andy, I am so honored to get to talk with you today. Thank you so much for being with us. Thanks, Barry. It's great to be here. So let's start at the start. How did you come to become a disability advocate? I mean, did you fall into it or, or what happened? Yeah, I think like a lot of people, I kind of found my way not on a linear path. I, I studied Italian Renaissance culture undergrad, thought about getting a PhD in art history, went to law school in part because I couldn't figure out what else to do. and when I was in law school, I was inspired by my classmates who were very social justice and public service oriented. So by the time I graduated law school, I knew I wanted to do public interest work. And I worked. I went to work for Cambridge and Somerville Legal Services. My wife was getting a PhD at Boston University. So we were in Boston when I started my career. And uh, they put me in SSI advocacy, supplemental security income, representing mm -hmm who were trying to be eligible for federal disability benefits. And that was kind of my introduction to the world of disability. I applied for a fellowship, ended up doing it at the Disability Law Center in Boston, which is similar to Disability Rights California. It's a federally funded protection and advocacy agency. And I found when I was there that I loved doing policy work. So I was calling people in Washington all the time. And I ended up coming down to Washington for an interview as my fellowship was ending and had an informational interview with Bobby Silverstein, who was Senator Harkin's staff director on the Disability Policy Subcommittee. And then he had me come back two weeks later to interview for an opening. And it was just kind of being in the right place at the right time. I have lived experience with bipolar disorder, which kicked in for me during my last semester of law school. So after I was working at the Disability Law Center for about a year, I started being open and out with my own disability. And I guess, you know, I was raised Catholic and I feel like God gave me this thing to navigate and gave me something to do with it. So in a lot of ways, I feel like I was, I'm doing what I was put on the planet to do. 
And I feel like my job really hasn't changed that much in the 30 plus years that I've been working in this field. I, I see myself as a soldier in a movement, whether I'm working in the government or outside the government, and I'm just trying to improve policy and improve lives for people with disabilities and help people like me with disabilities believe in themselves and believe in what we can accomplish when we work together. So, yeah, I was wondering when your mental health disability had been diagnosed. So it was the last year of, of law school. Yeah, I, I was a visiting student. I got my law degree from Stanford, but because of my wife's PhD, I did my last year in Boston. So I was a visiting student at Harvard Law School. I actually had local government law with Obama as a student. He was a student there when I was there. Oh, cool. And I just, like, I went overnight from being a cocky visiting student who talked a lot in class to having no energy, no self-confidence, having a really hard time getting out of bed. And it happened very fast. I had just married my wife, Betsy, who I'm still married to. So I feel like I was on a conveyor belt and she helped me stay on the conveyor belt and graduate from law school and kind of figure out how to navigate this new new existence. But the first few months were really scary. I just, I, I had not had any experience like that before and I didn't really know what to do with it. But it was very hard for me to imagine that I could have a career as a lawyer feeling the way I was feeling. Right. And you know, some of the research that Dr. Blank has been doing with the disability rights community and people who are lawyers and the discrimination lawyers face in the legal profession is just shocking. It really is. And, you know, I mean, Peter, I remember meeting Peter for the first time when I worked for Senator Harkin. In my first stint with him, I worked for him from 93 to 94 and then came back in 2010 after Senator Kennedy passed. But the first time I worked for Harkin, so that's now almost 30 years ago, I remember Peter wrote an article or get, asked Senator Harkin to publish an article in a, in a journal he was doing at the University of Iowa Law School. And I remember working on that article, and that's how I first got to know Peter. Yeah. Well, you mentioned Senator Harkin, truly one of the great champions of the ADA and, and disability rights and Maybe if you could talk a little bit more about your experiences with Dr. Harkin and how that helped you in your career and inform your advocacy. Yeah, well, you know, I, when I first worked for him, I was 28, you know, and I had I had been a public interest lawyer in Boston. My wife and I lived in Jamaica Plain. We had a pretty Boston existence, not too fancy. So to go from that to my desk in Senator Harkin's subcommittee was looking at the Supreme Court. I literally was looking at the Supreme Court from my desk and it was surreal. You know, I was writing speeches for a United States Senator that he was giving on the Senate floor. And there was a part of me that was like, is this real or am I having kind of a, a manic dream here? <laughs> <laughs> and you're 28 years old. Yeah. So I just feel very lucky, you know, lucky that I worked for Bobby Silverstein. I had my first son a month after starting my job and Bobby had two sons and he, and he really modeled for me how to prioritize your children and try to have some time with your family and balance yeah. in a city that's not known for work-life <laughs> balance. And then Senator Harkin, I think he has a deep passion for the disability community, which started in his childhood with his brother, his brother yeah. 
with Frank. I think his passion has only, you know, increased over time. And I think he also is naturally inclined to hire strong staff and listen to them and encourage them to challenge him, encourage them to speak their minds. So I feel very lucky, you know, I've, I've worked in the executive branch and the legislative branch of the federal government. And I have to say, I do better in the legislative branch because at least in the context of Tom Harkin, I do feel spoiled. I don't know that I could ever find another elected official that I would enjoy working for as much. But, you know, in the, in the legislative branch, if you have an idea, you can tee it up and put it in front of your, your principal and get a response. Like Senator Harkin took home a packet every night and read all the memos in there and would write handwritten notes back to you. There wasn't a lot of layers between you and the decision maker. And that works better for me. I, I That motivates me as an employer to go farther than if I have to go through five levels of decision making before any decision gets made. I, part of my disability is I don't have a lot of patience. And so I, I did better in a Senate environment. When I worked for him the second time, I was older, he was older, and I felt like the spoiled child. At that point, he had 100 employees. And anything that I wanted, everybody who worked for Tom Harkin was motivated to say yes. We, we did 13 hearings on disability topics in two and a half years, and nobody questioned that. You know, when we were trying to figure out a slot for a hearing, the staff director for the committee would often say, Andy, do you have a disability topic? And it was never hard for me to come up with topics. So yeah, it was, it was a great experience. And I'm still working with him. You, when you work for a judge, or which I have done, or you work for an elected official, you really never stop working for them. You feel you feel connected to them, almost like you're part of the family. Sure. So I, I saw him twice over the summer, and uh, he's still going strong and still as passionate as ever about these issues. Well, in, in any conversation, hasn't been many, but the conversations I've had with the senator, he's just so approachable. He is so down to earth, right? I think part of that is Iowa. You know, if, if you want to be a successful politician in Iowa, you need to be accessible to everybody in Iowa. They all expect yeah. to have access to you. So I think part of that's just who he is. That's his personality. But it's also part of why he was successful as a Democrat getting reelected five times in a state that doesn't always elect Democrats. Very true. Yeah. Yeah. So I first met you when you were the director of AUCD. And then you you were at AUCD for a number of years and then went on to Disability Rights California. And what drew you to that position? Because I we, we miss you in you know on the East Coast. Oh well, thank you. You know, I grew up in Southern California. My mother was an LA Times reporter, and that's why my family was in LA. And I, you know, when my oldest son graduated college, he decided to live in LA and try to build a career as a writer producer, and he still lives in LA. And when we made the decision to move out here, my youngest son was an undergrad at Pomona College, also mm. in Southern California. So my wife and I were just tired of being, you know, three hours time zones away, 3,000 miles away from our two adult children. And we were both kind of ready for a change. I, my experience, and I was in Washington for 26 years, my experience there was a love-hate relationship with the city. I love policy. I, I, there are so many people in Washington, D.C. who I love and who I miss being around every day. But 
I just think the energy in Washington, D.C. is kind of a toxic energy. And no matter whether it's a Democrat in the White House or a Republican in the White House, D.C. is a magnet for people who are obsessed with power. And it creates bad energy in the city. And I, I think part of my disability is I'm really sensitive to energy. So I lived in Baltimore the whole time I worked in Washington because Baltimore has a very different energy. But yeah, I just, as I kind of entered this phase of my life, probably one more big job, one or two more big jobs in me, you know, I, I was attracted to the idea of going to Disability Rights California, the biggest protection and advocacy agency, much bigger than anything I had ever managed. Right. And, you know, try to help them be as good as they can be. And, you know, I started a month before the pandemic. So it's been an interesting time to have a transition. AUCD, we had like 30 employees and a $6 million budget. Disability Rights California has over 300 employees and a $43 million budget. So it's just a lot, lot bigger. And it's fun. I feel like we're overflowing with talent. We also have more kind of hard funding than I've ever had. So I don't have as much pressure on me to go out and raise money. Yeah. And it feels good. It feels like at this stage in my life, there's so many people that are kind of rising stars in my organization. If I can help them on their journey, and then all of us collectively can help California do better, given the size and scale of our state, it feels like a good place for me to be right now. Yeah. But there are some common threads, whether you are in California or in Maryland, in terms of the issues that people with disabilities face. But I'm wondering, are there any issues that are different or more specific to California than perhaps in other parts of the country? Well, you know, it's funny. One of the things that I particularly like about Los Angeles is that Los Angeles often deals with issues that are going to be issues for other parts of the world, but often is dealing with them early. So I think if you look at the impact of climate change on the state of California, we're dealing with really serious issues with wildfires and, you know, just all kinds of climate change, you know, heat waves, you name it. And So I I don't think they're unique to California. I think no matter where you live, you're going to be affected by climate change. People in Iowa are dealing with flooding. You know, I mean, anywhere you are, climate change is going to affect you. But I do think California is coming at it with a progressive, unified government, a big budget, big, you know, deep state coffers. And they're trying to tackle what is probably the hardest policy challenge of our time. I don't think nobody knows exactly how to tackle it. So that feels like a very relevant issue that certainly disproportionately affects a lot of people with disabilities and older. And then, you know, I just think the immigrant rights issues in California, all the border related stuff that's playing out across the country. Again, California is a border state with a progressive government that is trying to do progressive immigration policy, that feels very relevant to me if we can figure out how to do that and how to you know, welcome folks into our country and treat them with dignity and respect and not discriminate against them based on disability or any other characteristic, that all feels relevant. So I would say we're one-tenth of the population of the United States and we deal with issues sometimes before other states or other communities. And oftentimes we come at them with a more progressive unified government 
not to say that our government is unified on these issues, but certainly compared to Washington, D.C., right. I don't see the division in our government that I saw every day in Washington, D.C. You don't you don't feel that toxic energy that you felt in, in D.C.? No, Sacramento has its own challenges. We can be kind of a good old boy you know, city, you know, it's a, there's a lot of backroom deals that happen in Sacramento, but it, it doesn't feel, I don't, nowhere near do I feel the intensity. D, DC is the most type A place I've ever been. And it just didn't feel healthy to me. Yeah. You know, I live in Kentucky, so I'm no stranger to the good old boy network. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, the problems I have with Sacramento, you know, I would have these challenges in any state capital, you know, state capitals tend to be insular. They tend to be, you got to know the right people. You got to know the culture. Sure. So part of it is I'm, I'm coming with my DC obnoxiousness and I'm learning the culture of Sacramento. Well, you know, when you took that job, you know, first I paused and said, Oh darn, you know, Andy's going West. And then I thought, what a perfect pick. I mean, I see that as, as such a great fit for you. Well, thanks. I, it feels healthy. I mean, the pandemic puts an asterisk on everything, but it feels like a healthy place for me. And I think for my wife and I, we're learning to love Sacramento and we're appreciating. I think sometimes it's just helpful to have a change of venue to keep things fresh in your life. You know, everything has a season. And I feel like my season in Washington was incredibly meaningful to me, but I was ready to move on. And I feel like my wife, she's an academic, but she felt similarly. So I'm curious. So you take you take the job in 2020 and then immediately the pandemic shuts everything down. What a challenge to be new at a job and and then just have to deal with all that, send everybody home and figure out what to do next. So I, this is where I feel like my prior experience as a CEO was really helpful to me. The 11 years at APD and then the six and a half years at AUCD. One of the things I learned in the 17 plus years before coming to California is to not be a top-down manager, to right. really try to sound people out, to not micromanage. So whatever we did to navigate the pandemic, we did as a team, I leaned hard on my, you know, direct reports and other folks on the staff. And I feel like we made good decisions and we're still making good decisions. But yes, it is hard. And like, I'll give you an example of a challenge that I'm having right now. We own our building in Sacramento, which is a great thing. It's in a great neighborhood. We own a parking lot and we own the building. But we don't really have lots of people who want to come and use it on a regular basis. So we're trying to figure out, should we keep the building and repurpose it? Should we sell the building and downsize? These are the kinds of issues that when I started the job, I would not have anticipated. Yeah, well, I'm, you know, I'm sitting in my office at University of Kentucky today, but I'm, I am rarely in this office. And I find that I am far more productive working from my office at home than I ever am here. So it's yeah, I think I think lots of us have learned the pros and cons of working from home. And you know, I keep in mind you're talking to somebody who had a three hour commute every day for yeah. 26 years. Right. Um, so it's really nice not spending so much time commuting. But 
I also really like having meals with human beings occasionally and getting to know them as people. And that's harder to do when nobody's ever together. Yeah. You know, some people thrive in, in the COVID environment or separate environment. I know I have, my wife is not. She's like you. She really craves that personal contact with people and collaboration down the hallway and what have you. So I wanted to ask you about the Advisory Committee for National Center on Cultural Competence at Georgetown. I understand that that you do work on this advisory committee, and I don't know much about the work of NCCC, and if you could talk about that and what its vision for disability inclusion is. Sure. So that is the kind of brainchild of Tawara Good, who runs the University Center for Excellence in Developmental Disabilities out of Georgetown. So her, you said, University Center for Excellence is based at Georgetown. And Tawara and that, you said, have been doing national work on cultural and linguistic competence for decades. They've done a lot of work in the mental health space, including the children's mental health space. So I think when Aaron Bishop was the commissioner for the administration, Intellectual and Developmental Disabilities under President Obama, he decided that he really wanted to lean into cultural and linguistic competence and Tawara successfully competed to run a center that has a focus on the intellectual and developmental disability community and she put together some advisors. I felt like I was there in part based on my lived experience with bipolar disorder and you know just my connections to the civil rights community. One of the things that I did when I was at AAPD that I really enjoyed is I served on the executive committee of the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights. And I was the only disability leader on there. So I had an opportunity to connect with civil rights leaders in every category of civil rights. Those relationships were relationships that I really cherished and have tried to maintain. But yeah, I mean, I think There's a lot of different words that people use to describe that work. Sometimes people call it cultural and linguistic competence. Sometimes they call it cultural humility. Sometimes it gets framed around equity, health equity. In California, we talk about disparities or service access and equity. But I think the basic concept is in the disability community and in, in the intellectual and developmental disability community, there are people who get more resources and people who get less And it's not always based on the need of the person. Sometimes it's based on the socioeconomic status of the person, their education level, where they are geographically. So I think Tawara is trying to help the whole IDD field, including the folks in California who serve the IDD community, just do a better job thinking through all the issues that you have to think through in order to really serve a population as diverse as California or as the IDD population in any state or territory. And I feel like, you know, we've had a number of moments as a country where we've started to take these issues more seriously. Certainly the George Floyd murder was one of those moments. But I I just appreciate that Tawar has been doing this work for decades and that Aaron had the vision to really make an investment in this work, recognizing that the whole IDD field could yeah. benefit from it. So I, I love Tawara. She was one of my you know, strongest allies and relationships when I was at AUCD. I was sorry that right as I left, she was becoming the president of the board of AUCD. So I didn't get a chance to work with her as the board president. 
but she was very supportive of me taking this job and we've we've found ways to keep working together since i've been in california and you know i went to her leadership she does a leadership retreat at a native american owned hotel in santa fe new mexico and i i went to i was in one of the cohorts that went through that leadership retreat it was like a four-day retreat so it was really nice to get to see her and her element there, you know, trying to help everybody be better leaders and think about cultural linguistic competence, diversity, equity, inclusion, whatever terminology people want to use. But I, I just see her as an elder who's been doing that work for a long time and the world is starting to catch up with her, although it hasn't, you know, every time we feel like we're making progress, then we also have setbacks. And I'm very very worried about where the Supreme Court is going to take us on some of these issues. I think that we all are. It certainly is a different environment than what we've previously been used to. Keeping with that theme, Andy, just the idea that, you know, underserved populations, Latinx communities, African-American communities, Native American communities with disability, you know, those people with disabilities, their voices in the past have not been heard. So it's just really important to encourage and have those opinions as part of the conversation. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Having been in Washington during most of the Clinton administration and the Obama administration, it's interesting to contrast kind of the work that was done in those two administrations and just kind of how the country has evolved. I feel like in the Clinton administration, and maybe this was true in the Carter administration too, I don't know, that was before I got to Washington, but in the Clinton administration, there was a commitment to diversity in the disability space and outside of it, but oftentimes we wanted people of color in leadership positions as long as they espoused the same agenda as the white people who had been leading the disability movement for a long time. In the Obama administration, it felt like we were open to the agenda changing, and it did change. You know, the disability community started to focus more on criminal justice reform and immigration reform and other issues that the white leaders of the disability movement had not always prioritized. So I feel like the Democratic Party also has been on a journey on these issues. The Obama appointees that had important roles in disability policy were way more diverse racially and ethnically than the Clinton appointees. But yeah, I mean, obviously this work never ends. We're hiring a director of diversity, equity, and inclusion and access for Disability Rights California. The person's going to report to me. But from my perspective, you know, we have a very diverse staff although there's always room for improvement, but we have a ton of work to do just to make sure everybody on the staff feels welcomed and valued and feels like they have equal access to career ladders. And I just know that that's, there's no disability organization that I'm aware of that doesn't have diversity, equity, and inclusion issues they still have to grapple with. Yeah, same with us, very much so. So to kind of move this forward, you know, we look back over the past 50 years and we see that things have gotten better. You know, 504, the Rehabilitation Act certainly improved the lives of people with disabilities. But as you said, there's there's still so much more to do. So I'm curious what Andy Imperato thinks are our challenges as we move into 
our next 50 years of including people with disabilities? Yeah, I think it's a good question and we should all have some humility as we try to answer that question because it's hard to predict what's going to happen. I mean, just look at how our world has changed because of COVID. And that was not on many of our radar screens in 2019. You know, I, I believe that the biggest kind of opportunity for our community is to align our most expensive disability benefits or long-term services and supports programs with the ADA, IDEA, the Rehabilitation Act. You know, we've got laws, most of which came through the Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee that have a big, bold vision for what's possible for people with disabilities. And then we have laws, most of which came through the Finance Committee in the Senate or Energy and Commerce and Ways and Means in the House where the laws are trying to sort out who are the worthy disabled people that deserve benefits from the government. And the primary way that we still sort that out as a country is we ask people to prove with medical evidence that they can't work, that their disability prevents them from engaging in substantial gainful activity. That definition was written in 1956, and it has not changed since 1956. It's a very hard thing to fix because there are hundreds of billions of dollars that turn on that definition and you get actuaries at Social Security and people at the Congressional Budget Office that anything you do to make it a more attractive definition and make the program more attractive, that people are going to come out of the woodwork who are not currently on the program and it's going to break the bank. So I'm hoping that states like California can innovate. Maybe Kentucky could innovate too here and come up with better ways to support people that don't require them to prove that they can't work, figure out how to calibrate it so that people can move on and off benefits as they need it. And maybe the long COVID population is a big enough population that will drive change in this area. But I feel like right now, our disability benefit programs and our civil rights laws are not aligned. And I don't think this is unique to the United States. I think lots of countries grapple with this. I think most of us in the disability movement feel like we could have higher labor force participation rates as a community if the programs that are designed to support us also expected us to participate in the labor force and fully supported us to do that and recognize that many of us are gonna move in and out of the labor force and are gonna have ups and downs connected to our conditions and that the disability benefit system should be able to flex with us as as we need it to. You know, that's kind of the, you raise such an interesting point because really it's the incongruity of our social welfare system clutching on to a medical model of disability. And meanwhile, the disability community has moved on to to a social model of disability. And, And at that point, that's where I see the conflict being. No, I agree. Because I've worked on this in a lot of different capacities, including when I was on the ticket to work and work at Senate's advisory panel for the Social Security Administration, I just know that this is not an easy problem to solve. It's very easy to articulate the social model versus the medical model. It's not easy to replace the medical model with another model that will get Republican support and will stand the test of time. And that's the work that we have to do as a community to figure out another model that can actually work and be implemented. That's well said, yeah. I did wanna ask you, Andy, 
especially because of your experience with Senator Harkin. You know, his retirement created quite a, a vacuum, you know, in the Senate as far as disability rights and, and who would become that champion. Certainly to, to a large extent, Senator Casey has, but who are the other champions that you see in, on the legislative side? Yeah, well, first, a lot of people don't always note who else retired at the same time as Tom Harkin. So he, he left Congress in January of 2015. The other folks that left the same time were Senator Rockefeller, who was one of the most important champions for poor children on the Senate Finance Committee, and his, his Medicaid staffers were always among the most progressive and important voices for people on Medicaid. And then Henry Waxman from the House retired at the same time, and he was the Medicaid guy in the House. So to have all three of them retiring at the same time, George Miller retired around the same time too, who was like the education person in the House. These are people that have had decades and decades of experience and knowledge that came from that. So that's a, just a huge loss collectively. And I bring up the Medicaid folks because Medicaid is so important to the disability community. And you know, if we wanna have a robust Medicaid buy-in program for the whole country, we need people who understand Medicaid, understand disability, and are able and willing to do the hard work to make that happen over time. But I think, you know, if you look at some of the rising voices post Tom Harkin, you're absolutely right that Bob Casey is at the top of the list. Part of it is based on staffing. His disability policy director, Michael Gilman McCormick, worked for Senator Harkin deeply, deeply committed to these issues, you know, very connected to the community, deep love for the disability community. His legislative director, Derek Miller, was Senator Harkin's legislative director. So you've got two key Harkin people that are in key roles with Senator Casey. Right. And then again, I think Senator Casey has a real heart for this work. To be fair, when Senator Harkin was in the Senate, he didn't really want other people leading on disability issues. He was very turfy about it. So people like Senator Casey probably would have been leading earlier, but didn't necessarily feel welcome to do that. When Senator Harkin left, it created an opportunity. I think there was pent up demand where people wanted to lead on these issues. A lot of them are on the Health, Education, Labor and Pensions Committee, but not all of them. Senator Duckworth obviously has lived experience with a disability, is passionate about these issues. So notwithstanding her committee assignments, she's an important voice on these issues. And she single-handedly stopped the ADA Notification Act the last time that it made it through the House and was making its way to the Senate. She wrote a letter to every, every Democrat in the Senate and said, over my dead body, basically, is this going to pass the Senate? You know, I think Maggie Hassan, who's also on the Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee, she's got an adult child with a developmental disability. She's a strong champion for the disability community. I think Elizabeth Warren, you know, has definitely stepped up on disability issues, had a great platform when she ran for president. And then in the House, you know, I feel like there's a lot of newer members of the House, like Ayanna Presley or Katie Porter, who are very progressive, who are very kind of outspoken, and who really want disability to be part of their progressive agenda and their progressive platform. So the beautiful thing about our movement is 
we're constantly finding new allies. Disability touches so many elected officials and appointed officials in so many ways that I'm not worried that we're not going to have a new generation of leaders in the House and the Senate who carry this work forward. I saw that Jim Langevin is retiring in the House. Sorry to lose that voice, another important person with lived experience in Congress. But I'm confident that we, the Jim Langevins and Tom Harkins of the world will get replaced over time with more leaders with lived experience and more leaders who have passion around these issues. And the person that I, sh I should mention, Kathy McMorris Rogers, you know, Kathy is a parent, school age child with Down syndrome. And she is, you know, if the Republicans take over the leadership of the House after this election, she will be the chair of the Energy and Commerce Committee, or at least she's in line to be the chair of the Energy and Commerce Committee, which has jurisdiction over Medicaid and the Developmental Disabilities Act and lots of other things that matter to folks with disabilities. And Kathy has shown herself over time to be a strong ally for the disability community. There are a lot of times where she ends up voting lockstep with the Republican Party on issues in which she's not always lined up with the community, but she has a lot of personal passion around it. She likes working on a bipartisan basis on disability issues. And I consider her you know, a personal friend so I'm kind of excited to see if she does move into a leadership role on energy and commerce. Are there things that we can do with her around expanding the Medicaid buy-in, expanding you know, access to home and community-based services, having more self-determination for people in the Medicaid program? I'm hopeful that there are things that we can work with her on. Andy, thank you for taking the time to talk with me today. It's always an honor to speak with you. So, so thank you so much. Listeners, you can access this interview and more interviews at the Section 504 at 50 website. That web address is section 504 at 50.org. The 504 at 50 series is produced by the Southeast ADA Center, the Burton Blatt Institute at Syracuse University, and is a collaboration with the Disability Inclusive Employment Policy Rehabilitation Research and Training Center. 